Chapter 20 of The House of the Arrow by A. E. W. Mason. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 20 A Map and the Necklace. Hanaud turned his map round and pushed it across the table to Jim Frobisher. What do you make of that? he asked, and Jim drew up a chair and sat down to examine it. He made, first of all, a large scale map of Dijon and its environments, the town itself lying at the bottom of the red hoop and constituting the top of the handle of the tennis racket as to the red circle it seemed to represent a tour which someone had made out from dijon round a good tract of outlying country and back again to the city but there was more to it than that the wavy dividing line for instance from the top of the circle to the handle that is to dijon and on the left-hand edge of the hoop as he bent over the map and just outside dijon the red mark a little red square which hanaud had just made against this square an hour was marked eleven a m he read he followed the red curve with his eyes and just where this dividing line touched the rim of the hoop another period was inscribed here frobisher read eleven forty frobisher looked up at hanaud in astonishment good god he exclaimed and he bent again over the map the point where the dividing line branched off was in a valley as he could see by the contours yes he had found the name now the val d'Azon. just before eleven o'clock betty had stopped the car just outside dijon opposite a park with a big house standing back and had asked him to tighten the strap of the toolbox they had started again exactly at eleven betty had taken note of the exact time and they had stopped where the secondary road branched off and doubled back to dijon at the top of the hoop at the junction of the rim and the dividing line exactly at eleven forty this is a chart of the expedition we made to-day he cried we were followed then he remembered suddenly the second motorcyclist who had come up from behind through the screen of their dust and had stopped by the side of their car to join in their conversation with the tourist the motorcyclist he asked and again he got no answer but the motorcyclist had not followed them all the way round on their homeward course they had stopped to lunch in the tangled garden there had been no sign of the man jim looked at the map again he followed the red line from the junction of the two roads round the curve of the valley to the angle where the great national road to paris cut across and where they had lunched after luncheon they had continued along the national road into dijon whereas the red line crossed it and came back by a longer and obviously a less frequented route i can't imagine why you had us followed this morning monsieur hanaud he exclaimed with some heat but i can tell you this the chase was not very efficiently contrived we didn't come home that way at all i haven't an idea how you came home hanaud answered imperturbably the line on that side of the circle has nothing to do with you at all as you can see for yourself by looking at the time marked where the line begins the red hoop at the bottom was not complete there was a space where the spliced handle of the racket would fit in the space filled by the town of dijon and at the point on the right-hand side where the line started frobisher read in small but quite clear figures ten at twenty-five a m jim was more bewildered than ever i don't understand one word of it he cried hanaud reached over and touched the point with the tip of his pen 
this is where the motorcyclist started the cyclist who met you at the branch road at eleven forty the tourist asked jim a second ago it had seemed to him impossible that the fog could thicken about his wits any more and yet it had let us say the man with the portmanteau on his trailer hanaud corrected you see that he left his starting point in dijon thirty-five minutes before you left yours the whole manoeuvre seems to have been admirably planned for you met precisely at the arranged spot at eleven forty neither the car nor the cycle had to wait one moment manoeuvre arranged spot frobisher exclaimed looking about him in a sort of despair has everyone gone crazy why in the world should a man start out with a portmanteau in a sidecar from dijon at ten twenty five run thirty or forty miles into the country by a roundabout road and then return by a bad straight track there's no sense in it no doubt it is perplexing hanaud agreed he nodded to moreau who went out of the room by a communicating door towards the front of the house but i can help you hanaud continued at the point where you started after tightening the strap of the toolbox on the edge of the town a big country house stands back in a park yes said jim that is the house of madame levet where this fancy dressed ball takes place to-night madame levet's chateau frobisher repeated where he began a question and caught it back but hanaud completed it for him yes where anne upcott now is you started from it at precisely eleven in the morning he looked at his watch it is not yet eleven at night so she is still there frobisher started back in his chair hanaud's words were like the blade of silver light cutting through the darkness of the cinema hall and breaking into a sheet of radiance upon the screen the meaning of the red diagram upon hanaud's map the unsuspected motive of betty's expedition this morning were revealed to him it was a rehearsal he cried hanaud nodded a time rehearsal yes the sort of thing which takes place in theatres without the principal members of the company thought frobisher but a moment later he was dissatisfied with that explanation wait a moment he said that won't do i fancy the motorcyclist with a sidecar had brought his argument to a standstill his times were marked upon the map they were therefore of importance what had he to do with anne upcott's escape but he visualized the motorcyclist and his sidecar and his connection with the affair became evident the big portmanteau gave frobisher the clue anne upcott would be leaving madame levet's house in her ball dress just as if she was returning to the maison grenelle and without any luggage at all she could not arrive in paris in the morning like that if she were to avoid probably suspicion and certainly remark the motorcyclist was to meet her at the val d'Erzon, transfer her luggage rapidly to her car and then return to dijon by the straight quick road whilst anne turned off at the end of the valley to paris he remembered now that seven minutes had elapsed between the meeting of the cycle and the motor-car and their separation seven minutes then were allowed for the transference of the luggage another argument flashed into his thoughts betty had told him nothing of this plan it had been presented to him as a mere excursion on the summer day her first hours of liberty naturally employed her silence was all of a piece with the determination of betty and anne upcott to keep him altogether out of the conspiracy every detail fitted like the blocks in a picture puzzle 
yes there had been a time rehearsal and henault knew all about it that was the disturbing certainty which first overwhelmed frobisher when he had got the better of his surprise at the scheme itself henault knew and betty had so set her heart on anne's escape let her go he pleaded earnestly let anne upcott get away to paris and to england and henault leaned back in his chair with a little gasp the queerest smile broke over his face i see he said oh i know frobisher exclaimed hotly appealing you are of the surete and i am a lawyer an officer of the high court in my country and i have no right to make such a petition but i do without a scruple you can't get a conviction against anne upcott you haven't a chance of it but you can throw such a net of suspicion about her that she'll never get out of it you can ruin her yes but that's all you can do you speak very eagerly my friend hanaud interposed jim could not explain that it was betty's anxiety to save her friend which inspired his idea he fell back upon the scandal which such a trial would cause there has been enough publicity already owing to boris waberski he continued surely miss harlow has had distress enough why must she stand in the witness-box and give evidence against her friend in a trial which can have no result that's what i want you to realize monsieur Renault. i have had some experience of criminal trials oh shade of mr hazlitt why was that punctilious man not there in the flesh to wipe out with an indignant word the slur upon the firm of frobisher and hazlitt and i assure you that no jury could convict upon such evidence why even the pearl necklace has not been traced and it never will be you can take that from me monsieur hanaud it never will be hanaud opened a drawer in the table and took out one of those little cedar-wood boxes made to hold a hundred cigarettes which the better class of manufacturers use in england for their wares he pushed this across the table towards jim something which was more substantial than cigarettes rattled inside of it jim seized upon it in a panic he had not a doubt that betty would far sooner lose her necklace altogether than that her friend anne upcott should be destroyed by it he opened the lid of the box it was filled with cotton wool from the cotton wool he took a string of pearls perfectly graded in size and gleaming softly with a pink lustre which even to his untutored eyes was indescribably lovely it would have been more correct if i had found them in a match-box said hanaud but i shall point out to monsieur bex that after all matches and cigarettes are again jim was still staring at the necklace in utter disappointment when moreau knocked upon the other side of the communicating door hanaud looked again at his watch yes it is eleven o'clock we must go the car has started from the house of madame levet he rose from his chair buried the necklace again within the layers of cotton wool and locked it up once more in the drawer the room had faded away from jim frobisher's eyes he was looking at a big brilliantly illuminated house and a girl who slipped from a window and wrapping a dark cloak about her glistening dress ran down the dark avenue in her dancing slippers to where a car waited hidden under trees the car may not have started jim said with sudden hopefulness there may have been an accident to it the chauffeur may be late oh a hundred things may have happened 
with a scheme so carefully devised so meticulously rehearsed no my friend hanaud took an automatic pistol from a cabinet against the wall and placed it in his pocket you are going to leave that necklace just like that in a table drawer jim asked we ought to take it first to the prefecture this room is not unwatched replied hanaud it will be safe jim hopefully tried another line of argument we shall be too late now to intercept an upcott at the branch road he argued it is past eleven as you say well past eleven and thirty-five minutes on a motorcycle in the daytime means fifty minutes in a car at night especially with a bad road to travel we don't intend to intercept an upcott at the branch road hanaud returned he folded up the map and put it aside upon the mantel-shelf i take a big risk you know he said softly but i must take it and no i cannot be wrong but he turned from the mantel-shelf with a very anxious and troubled face then as he looked at jim a fresh idea came into his mind by the way he said the facade of notre dame jim nodded the bas-relief of the last judgment we went to see it we thought your way of saying what you believed a little brutal hanaud remained silent with his eyes upon the floor for a few seconds and then he said quietly i am sorry he tacked on a question you say we oui. mademoiselle harlow and i jim explained oh yes to be sure i should have thought of that and once more his troubled cry broke from him it must be that no i can't be wrong anyway it's too late to change now a second time moreau rapped upon the communicating door hanaud sprang to alertness that's it he said take your hat and stick monsieur frobisher good you are ready and the room was at once plunged into darkness hanaud opened the communicating door and they passed into the front room a bedroom looking out upon the big station square this room was in darkness too but the shutters were not closed and there were patches of light upon the walls from the lamps in the square and the grand taverna in the corner the three men could see one another and to jim in this dusk the faces of his companions appeared of a ghastly pallor donet took his position when i first knocked said moreau patineau has just joined him he pointed across the square to the station buildings some cabs were waiting for the paris train and in front of them two men dressed like artisans were talking one of them lit a cigarette from the stump of a cigarette held out to him by his companion the watchers in the room saw the end of the cigarette glow red the way is clear monsieur said moreau we can go and he turned and went out of the end to the staircase jim started to follow him whither they were going jim had not a notion not even a conjecture but he was gravely troubled all his hopes and betty's hopes for the swift and complete suppression of the waberski affair had seemingly fallen to the ground he was not reassured when hanaud's hand was laid on his arm and detained him you understand monsieur frobisher said hanaud with a quiet authority his eyes shining very steadily in the darkness his face glimmering very white that now the law of france takes charge there must not be a finger raised or a word spoken to hinder officers upon their duty on the other hand i make you in return the promise you desire no one shall be arrested on suspicion your own eyes shall bear me out the two men followed moreau down the stairs into the street
End of chapter 20